0: Children are dismissed back to praise factory. If you grab your Bible and turn to Colossians three, we're going to be uh, returning to our, our uh, systematic, step-by-step study through uh, Colossians, and uh, we're going to we're going to take another turn. Uh, there have been several of them in the book so far. The uh, the beginning of the book is about what Jesus has accomplished for us, uh, and we see we see the gospel uh, laid out clearly in the the book of Colossians. As uh, Paul is talking about how how the worship of of Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished for us in in his death and resurrection is uh, more powerful than the worship of angels. It's more powerful than than understanding hidden spiritual secrets. Uh, There are no hidden spiritual secrets. All that we're supposed to know about life and faith is revealed in the scriptures. There's nothing like kept uh, secret for the uh, the super Christians, or you know, like the ultra intelligent, or the super spiritual. There's there's none of that. Uh, all that we ought to know, and all that we need to know, is revealed in the scriptures. And so, uh, so, so Paul says that the worship of Christ is superior to that. It's superior to uh, bodily discipline, which is. Uh, Punishing ourselves, or or or, or um, other other ways of of practicing restraint that um, that are intended to make us more holy. Paul says that that these things uh, don't do anything to uh, to enhance our spirituality, uh, our relationship with Christ. And then finally, uh, the worship of Christ is better than than uh, than the religious regulations that used to exist uh, prior to the coming of Christ. And so we ought to turn to him and his sufficiency. And so uh, that's the first two chapters of the book. As we get to chapter three, Paul is then talking about applying the, the, the truth of who we've become in Christ to our lives. And he's talking about putting on virtue, putting on what, what we call the Christian's apparel or or uh, virtuous garments and that's what's discussed at the beginning of chapter three so we come to verse 12 i'm going to read to verse 19 and and we're going to be turning to what uh thank you is called the household section by scholars colossians chapter 3 verse 12 says put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness And then Paul says in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. And we thank you that your word speaks to our Needs. It doesn't necessarily always address our wants. It, it speaks to us in a way that gets underneath our skin. At times it, it addresses us in ways that we're uncomfortable with. Sometimes uh, the truth of the word cuts against our culture's values or, or the values that we've been brought up with. We may have a a general sense of how the world and the universe and life and everything is supposed to work. And then your word will say something that's unpopular or that is controversial. And so I pray that you would give us the grace to lower our defenses and to hear truth. Lord, sometimes we hear truth and our spirit wants to take that truth and use it to our own advantage, to use it to serve ourselves. And so we pray that, that you'd protect us from these, uh, these, these twin errors, that we would reject the truth because it's countercultural, or that we would embrace the truth for our own advantage. Instead, I pray that you would help us to live the way that Jesus taught us to live when he said that the one who is greatest among us would be our servant. And that the more authority and responsibility and power and control and position that we occupy, the greater our need to humble ourselves and serve. And so we we pray, Father, that you would destroy and dismantle what is not good. And that you would build up and strengthen what is good. That we might serve you and love you and honor you in the way that you call us to. Lord, we pray this, knowing that you're good, knowing that you're kind to us, and knowing that you've given us all the good things that we need in Jesus. Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, the theme throughout the book of Colossians is that Jesus is our all-sufficient and preeminent Savior. Uh, it's, it's Paul's pattern many times when he, when he writes to, uh, to, to pick a, a main theme in his book. Uh, even though he's addressing something, right? He's addressing in in the book of Colossians up to the point where that we've we've gotten to now, all the ways in which the church has gone astray, right? And so uh, he's he's wagging his finger a little bit. At them and saying, hey, you know, stop with all this obsession with angel worship that you've got going on in the church. Like that's slowly creeping in. Get rid of that. Uh, stop with with all this judging one another because this person celebrates this and this person celebrates that. And and, you, you know, you're, you're not seeing eye to eye on these on these different uh, traditions. And stop with all the like, I got to punish myself to become more holy. Put that aside. But what he does as he as he's. Dealing with negative things is he's constantly pointing them back to the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing, right? Keep your eyes focused on this. Keep it focused on our purpose and who we are. And that's that Jesus is a sufficient Savior. That He's preeminent. That He has first priority. That He is the most important thing. And the problem with these errors and these difficulties is that what they do is they put Jesus on the shelf and they put something else in his place. And so what Paul does is he addresses how um, we, we have gone astray as a people, the way that we have strayed into sin, the way that we've alienated ourselves from, from God and how and how he has restored that relationship. And then he talks about how we personally come to christ how we how we experience union with him and then he deals with a number of these uh difficulties and objections and then he appeals to them to embrace a new way of living and thinking that they're to put on virtue and to put off those things which are ungodly right it's you know, you wake up in the morning and you get ready for your day. And hopefully, you know, you put off the pajamas and you put on the work clothes. Right. And you don't roll in to uh, to to work with your elf pajama pants on. Right. You know, or your your Star Wars uh, nightshirt or whatever, you know, like you don't you don't show up. As if you just rolled out of bed. You, you prep, right? You put on some hair product or some makeup. You put on some deodorant, right? You put off the bad morning breath and you put on some toothpaste, right? There, there is an experience of, of transformation that's supposed to take place on a daily basis. And Paul lays hold of this as he's talking about spiritual life in Christ. In, in the book of James Paul talks about how the word is to be the mirror that that reveals to us the, the transformation right hopefully all of you wherever it is that you prep or get ready you've got at least some kind of mirror right you know uh, and many of us we've got lots of mirrors in our lives right there are there's there's uh, mirrors in the bathroom. Maybe there's a, a mirror uh, on a dresser in your, your bedroom. Maybe you've got a little thing that's got makeup in it, right, ladies, hopefully not guys. Um, you know, you, you've got a little mirror built into that, right, you've got the rear view mirror in your car that you can check yourself out in. If you're in the passenger side of the car, there's a mirror right there in the visor. It's, I was just thinking, like why don't they put it in the driver's side? Do you have a mirror on the driver's side? This is bad news, right? This is like texting and driving, right? <laughs> Self, self-evaluation, you're going to be like, you know, should I get this removed or should I, did I shave enough? Bang, you know, no, bad. It's bad. Anyway, um, no judgment on car manufacturers there. Uh, what, what, what Paul is, is talking about here is, is transformation, and what's interesting here, and is distinct from New Year's resolutions or turning over a new leaf, is, is that what is discussed here is rooted in spiritual fact and truth, and not just in hopefulness or positivity, right? This is not change based on, I hope something will be different. It's that there's something that's spiritually active and alive in us, in Christ, that, that means that when we attempt to bring about change, that, that, that the universe, that our spirits, that the Holy Spirit of God, that, that God the Father will cooperate with us in that change, right? You know, we, we say, oh, it's a new year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my Habits, right? People, people say this. Well, on what basis are they embracing that change? Is anything helping them or is everything working against them? Paul says that when we put our trust in Christ, that the Holy Spirit enters in, that, that we become new creations, that, that the Spirit that used to live in us, that dominated us, has been broken and there is a, a new spirit living within us the Holy Spirit and we can embrace true change and so this is not just like I hope I can change it's as I embrace the truth transformation takes place now I just want I want to point out in uh, verses 12 through seventeen sorry it's actually just going to be twelve and thirteen uh, multiple reasons or motivations for experiencing or embracing change embracing uh, the pursuit of virtue the first reason is there in verse 12 where it says put on then as God's chosen ones if you are in Christ there is what some theologians have called the family secret right And that's that if you've chosen Christ, the reason you've chosen Christ is because God has been pursuing you and he drew you to himself. That he uh, transformed you by the power of his spirit and he pulled you toward him and, and you considered and believed and he has drawn you to him. Now, this is good news. Many people turn this into a giant evangelism issue, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to talk about this morning that this morning, but think about it from a, from a, a personal position of, of hopefulness. If you are worried about whether or not you're going to endure to the end, if you're worried about whether you're going to fall away, or if God is going to forsake you, if He drew you to himself and chose you and put His spirit in you when you believed, He is not going to throw you away. Amen. right? And so why embrace transformation? Because God chose you and he called you to himself. You know, if somebody says, man, I'm, I'm having this exclusive event and there's only going to be this many people here and I want you to come. You know, you might like work extra hard at getting ready for it. You might write the date down on the calendar. You might you might say, I'm gonna wake up early that morning. I'm gonna get a good night's sleep beforehand because I want to be in tip top shape for this event. Now just just take thoughts of exclusivity and, and, and being one of only a few who are chosen. Because that's never the emphasis in scriptures as far as I see that God is capricious and only chooses a few. The the emphasis is always on reassurance and encouragement that if God has called you to himself, he's going to see it through to the end. That if if he has called you to himself, then, then that is an amazing opportunity. And we ought to say, wow, why in the world would the God of the universe choose me? And and Paul points out so many things where, where he says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. He chose us at a specific time. He chose us and called us to himself. He chose us before we'd done anything amazing, before we'd done anything virtuous, before we'd done anything to attract his attention. And if he chose us at that time, whether we have ups or downs, he's not going to throw us away. That's good news. We're God's chosen ones. Second, we're holy. He says, "Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we're we're holy. We're called for a sacred purpose. We're set apart by God for something specific." Jesus says, "As the Father has sent me, so I send you." Right, we are, we are sent out with the Holy Spirit within us to be God's ambassadors and emissaries wherever we find ourselves, wherever you work, where, who, within your family. You're called for a purpose. And so since we're called for a purpose, we embrace change. We're also told that we're beloved by God, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God loves us more than we can possibly imagine. Say, when I was when I was younger, there were a lot of things that I wanted to know more about, and there were things I wanted my Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader to talk about. Teach me about this doctrine or this time or this uh, this truth from the Scriptures. The older I get, the more important. And the larger the the, the, the huger, the more all encompassing the doctrine of the love of God becomes. The fact that that before we had done anything virtuous, the book of Ephesians says, But God, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ, it is the center of everything in the Scriptures. It's the recurrent theme over and over again. We find that God's patience and his kindness and his continued graciousness towards people isn't built on anything that they've done. It's built on his love and his care. And so if we're called beloved of God, that ought to be a a powerful motivation for us to say, you know what, I'm going to respond to this love in a positive way. And so we embrace change. And then finally, in verse 13, it says that we have been forgiven. So we're called, as, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We're called to put on compassionate hearts, called to put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're called to bear with one another. And if there's any complaints or difficulty within our, uh, within our, our fellowship with one another or our relationships, we're to forgive one another. Why should I forgive them? On the, you don't know what they've done to me. Well, I see right here where it says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And then the flood of all the things that I've confessed and all the ways that I've failed and all the, 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 the ways in which I've not lived up to God's standards for me come crashing in. And I think he has been so incredibly gracious to me. How could I be ungracious to someone else? How could I refuse forgiveness to someone when I've been forgiven? How could I not take, how, how, how can I refuse to take this amazing forgiveness that I've been offered and use it as a motivation for change? So, so Paul is talking about virtue here in general. And then he's going to turn to the practical, right? And he's going to say, here are some places where you can apply this. And he doesn't, he doesn't like mess around and slowly ramp up right, you know, he doesn't, he's not, he's not delicately gonna, gonna move around, he jumps right into the nitty-gritty, right, right into the power wires, Uh, I've been doing a little bit of of electrical work at my house, Um, nothing too complex, like, I'm not, I'm not, like, I I, I don't understand codes and, you know, voltage and all that stuff, but I do understand, you know, if you turn the breaker off and disconnect this switch and wire everything up right, right, I can do some stuff, but I don't forget the fact that I could like, you know, incinerate my skin and my brain while I'm doing it. And so you need to be careful. Paul's like, we're jumping right into the middle of everything here. Like we are just going to jump right into the, 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 the center of, of where change and transformation and putting on virtue and embracing the way of Christ where, where it matters most. Now, as we talk about marriage and and marriage relationships, you might say, well, I'm single, right? Well, you never know, right? Singleness sometimes is just for a time. And that status can change. You might be married and you might say, we've got uh, a couple months in, a couple years in, a couple decades in. Uh, Things are pretty settled. They're not going to change. Well... The Holy Spirit lives within us and drives change. And when we embrace God's will, change comes. Uh, you might not be married, you might be young and, and thinking this is a couple years off, right? Store this up, save it, and 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 let it let it grow. Some of the most powerful things that I heard about uh, making Choices in marriage, I learned at a very young age in either youth group settings or at, uh, at, a, at events where people were speaking. And they just kind of circulated in my mind and, and, and percolated, you know, in the crock pot <laughs> until they 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 change my view and informed my choices. Paul is talking about how Jesus is an all sufficient savior and how following Him and living a transformed life empowered by Him affects everything. And so He's he's gonna Paul's gonna discuss guidelines here in this section, it starts in Colossians uh, 3, verse 18, and goes to chapter 4, verse 1. He's gonna talk about how we conduct our family matters and our business matters and how being a believer, how following Jesus affects things. And so he jumps right. Into relationships. So, verse 18, he talks about, he kicks off talking about marriage relationships by saying, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I don't know if Paul knew that this would be like a cultural hand grenade when he wrote this 2,000 years ago, but man, you know, you talk about uh, uh, something that is counter cultural and, and uh, just a sentence that might be considered toxic by many. Here it is, right? This could be classified as Bible hate speech by some, right? Uh, this all depends on how we define or how we understand the word submit. How it's, how it's used. Uh, that changes everything. And in, in part, what's important for people to realize is that, is that there, is, there are definitions of submit that are caricatures of what the Bible is actually promoting or encouraging here. Uh, There are stereotypical models of what submission looks like in a marriage relationship that aren't at all what the Bible intends. And where the Bible uh, demonstrates or, or visualizes a partnership between husband and Wife, a a relationship built on friendship and consensus and understanding that 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 is is seeking to, to live out God's way in the world. This this word submit comes out of maybe a 1940s and 1950s uh, a television view of what the world should be, and not so much what the Bible is promoting. It's important to note that what Paul says here is that wives are to be in submission to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, right? It's not to take that, 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 that sentence right there or that command to submit and then to say, submit in all things and in all ways. It says, as is fitting in the Lord. This is an important qualification, Right. Uh, I, I once had a young woman call me up and said, my husband is telling me that I need to uh, do these things and say these things and act this way. This is written related to insurance, you know, because I'm the husband, he says, and you're supposed to submit to me. And he was basically trying to encourage her to commit insurance fraud. And it's like, would Jesus ask you to do that? No. Well, then. It's not fitting in the Lord, right? You know, understand that that the call here to submit is, is not a all or nothing command. It's as is fitting in the Lord. Second qualification here, I think, that is super important is that many times we make this issue of submission one of role or identity And that we define someone in the marriage, we define the wife by a singular action, when what's being discussed here is a response to proper leadership. The call to submit is is not a definition of identity. The wife is not defined as a submitter here, as their entire role or their entire function within the marriage. Instead, what's being said here is that when the husband leads in a way that is fitting in the Lord, that the wife ought to empower, ought to support. And this is the way that we see the the, the word used many times. The word submit means to approve and to, to follow through. To, to see something as good and to say, yes, I'm going to get behind that. I'm going to support that. Think about the way that it's used in Romans 8 7. Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, right? The, the mind that says, I'm going to go my own way, do my own thing, right? I, I, I like this way of living. That's hostility towards God. And then Paul says, it does not submit to, to, to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It has its own commitment it's committed to living out what gratifies the flesh and if if it's committed there it can't submit support approve or empower this way of thinking or living many times when submission is trotted out in conversation as in your role is to submit What it means is I have made up my mind, I have put my foot down, I have made a decision, and your job is to mindlessly go along with it and to approve it because this is what I want. That's not biblical leadership. I believe many times within marriage, the fear of submission comes from a lack of trust in leadership. I think it's important that husbands develop a bit of a thicker skin when it comes to being corrected, right? Guys, I mean, we miss the big picture sometimes, right? I can remember finding the perfect deal on a car. This has got to be uh, maybe 19 years ago. uh, And I, I, you know, buying cars on the internet was like newish, right? And I had put in a bunch of I'd clicked a bunch of filters and things, and I found this car that was what I thought we could afford. And I said to Nancy, we're going to go get this. It's going to be great. You know what? We had two kids, and there were only two doors in the car. She was like, you know how difficult it's going to be to get kids in and out of that car? And I was like, wow, yeah, I'm glad I didn't put any money down on this thing like and make this thing happen, right? What I could have done was said, how dare you oppose me? And my spectacular leadership. <laughs> I demand that you submit to my way of thinking. The difficulty when 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 we want to make the <coughs> response, the role, is that, guys, we, we wall ourselves off from a world of helpfulness. Right? Think about what, what God did when He created Eve, He gave Adam a mission. Fill the earth, be fruitful, and multiply, subdue so the earth. Now, Adam could have been like, okay, I'm going to go out there with my hedge clippers and try to, try to, you know, get this garden in order. But God brings along the helper. Oh, the helper, right? Like, she's just the help. No, it's not like that. Helper is one, if she is not there, he has no hope of accomplishing his mission. How can he fill the earth with the image of God? Without Eve alongside him, how is that even possible? How can how can he do it? Uh, Many times, again, we we turn we turn a a a role or a response of helpfulness into a complete identity. Here's here's some as people grouse about the way the word helper is used, they forget that. Even though the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper for him. He also receives that title himself in the scriptures. Psalm 30, verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Does the next verse result in the the psalmist being incinerated for daring to call God a helper? No. He continues on his prayer, and they actually include it in the Bible. Psalm 54, verse 4, the psalmist says, Behold, God is my helper. Now listen to what comes next, because this is not a small, like, expansion on this topic. Behold, God is my helper. Psalm 54, 4, the Lord is the upholder of my life. That sounds pretty important, right? The upholder of my life. Submission is empowering leadership. It does not mean turning off the mind. It does not mean withholding comments. It doesn't mean that, that that support means that there's not a helpful criticism or feedback. And guys, listen, you may have, by your behavior and conduct and pattern over the years, you may have shut this off or shut it down. In which case, you may just need to say, you know what? I'm sorry. That I've, I've made you feel like you can't offer me any feedback. And I'd like that. God created Eve to help Adam and to, to be helpful to him. That's not reducing her identity at all. As a matter of fact, it's enhancing her. When, when Genesis was, was written... Uh, the attitude of men towards women in Egyptian and Hebrew culture was that what's the use of women other than producing children? Moses, through the Lord, says that women are of equal dignity and value. They are partners in this endeavor. Paul says the same thing. Peter says the same thing, that they're heirs of life, co-heirs, equals. There's to be a supportive and vibrant partnership between husband and wife. The wife ought not to be characterized by a a mousy kind of silence, right? Or a a difficult, domineering, uh, uh, disruptive personality, but that there ought to be some synergy between the two. This is not easy. But let me say this. Men thrive on respect. They want to be respected. They want to be respected for their accomplishments. You you don't need to look very far for evidence of this, right? Guys turn turn everything into a competition. I I recall years ago, uh, we were in uh, uh, anatomy and physiology class, and we were doing this uh, lung volume test, right? (laughs) We had this... Uh, this device, you know, and they use it in the hospital, right? And, and my lab group was, there's one girl, and there were like six guys in the group, right? And, and she went, and she was like, oh, you know, my lung volume is this. And then some other guy went, and I had been a swimmer, you know, and, and so I was like, all right, here we go. And I did the <laughs> test, and I outperformed I out them, like, by a factor of three or something. It was some massive difference. And all the other guys were then like, <laughs> you know, they're getting ready. <laughs> Like, they're going to they're gonna tough this thing out. You know, it's going to be a massive difference here. It, they turn everything into a competition. Why? Because the guy who puts the most points on the board is the one who's to be most respected. Men want respect in their job. They want respect from their children. They want respect from their wife. That's what they want. Respect comes when, when leadership is supported. And so many times when, when the respect is not there, when the support is not there, guys start to do all kinds of weird stuff to go and find respect somewhere. That's what they want. That's what they crave. And so the role, not the role, sorry, the response is to support. It's said in, in verse uh, 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 I lost my place here. It said that this is to be fitting in the lord uh, that it's it's as to the lord um, to be to be willing to submit to be willing to support is in keeping with jesus' own teaching and his example. Uh, some people might they, they view a supporting role as inferior or they say. Goodness, you know, I've been I've been consigned to this role. This will be unfulfilling. Let me say this: Matthew twenty verses, uh, starting. In, yeah, verses twenty-five to twenty-eight. Jesus is is he interrupts this argument between their disciple his disciples about who is the greatest, right? Again, here they are trying to command respect by figuring out who's the the, the best of the disciples, right? Who who is the most discipley of all the disciples? And they're arguing about it. And Jesus calls them and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Rulers among the Gentiles, they rule. Their great ones exercise authority. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This whole idea of of submitting is is not one that's just confined to to the territory of marriage. In Ephesians 5.21, Christians are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is something that, that, that when, when another believer comes along and says, hey, you know what? I noticed this in your life. You ought to consider this instead of responding with anger and pride and saying, you hurt my feelings. Like you crushed my identity. We say, maybe they're right. And then we, we acknowledge and, and, and absorb their leadership and factor it into our lives. We're to submit to one another. We're to submit to leadership. Hebrews thirteen seventeen: obey your leaders and submit to them. Second Peter or 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14 says that we're to be subject to uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether it's to the emperor as supreme. Oh my goodness, that's anti-constitution, isn't it? To obey the government or to, he says here, to obey governors sent to us to punish those who do evil and to praise those to, those to do good. There needs to be order in society. We ought to Submit to proper authority. We're supposed to submit to those who are over us. In, in, uh, in ancient culture, they didn't have this whole employees, businesses arrangement. It was more like, uh, uh, here's my household. These are people who are in business with me. And here are my slaves. That's the way it was in the Roman Empire. And so Paul says that slaves are to be subject to their masters. They're to submit to their will. And nowadays we would say you're supposed to, uh, you know, if you take a job and you make an arrangement and they pay you a wage, you're supposed to support their leadership. Follow through with your boss. Younger Christians are so supposed to submit to those who are older. First Peter 5.5. Five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to their elders. If wives don't support their husband's leadership, their husband often will respond with frustration. Uh, one of the things that little kids do, if you ever tried to like lead them someplace they don't wanna go is they do this dead leg thing. You know this, where you're like, you're like come on, hold my hand, let's walk across the street and suddenly they're like, boom. And you're like dragging them and you're like, all the skin is gonna come off your knees, like stand up, what's up here? But, man, it's a lot harder to, to drag a kid, right? You know, you, you either stop or you drag them and embarrass yourself. Hopefully the floor has been freshly waxed, you know, and you can just kind of shuffle them along. But it's a whole lot easier to, to get something done when you're cooperating together. And husbands retreat. They dominate. They withdraw. They abandon they give up, they fight back when their leadership's not respected. The response to this, or I should say the, the the counterpoint to this is that husbands are called upon by Paul to love their wives, they're to love their wives, and not just as uh, as, as their 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 core identity, but because this is something that is built into what marriage is supposed to represent it's not paul will say in ephesians 5 that 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 god creates marriage in the garden and then he comes along and he and when he creates the church he says the love of jesus for the church is like the love that a husband has for his wife no he says that god created marriage because christ loves the church Because Christ loves his own, and marriage is a symbol of that. Husbands are to love their wives. Uh, And then he points out that that they're to love their wives in the same way that they nourish their own bodies. Now, we hear the word nourish, right, and we think vegetables, right? I don't think that's what's in view here. It's self-care or self-attention, right? When I, when I think about the way that I treat myself, I think, I can eat eight Oreos, right? I could probably, if, if I were just going to throw caution to the wind, I could probably eat a whole pack of Oreos, Amen. right? Yeah, I could do it. Why? Because Oreos are tasty and I love myself, right? And so I'm going to shower affection on myself by eating all these Oreos. Now, I will pay for it. In a few hours, I will feel like garbage. But man, in the moment, wow. Right? Come on, guys. You, you, see, don't judge me because it's a new year. We're to nourish. We're to cultivate to cherish our wives in such a way that they have a, uh, that they have space and room to grow so that they can bloom and, and blossom emotionally so that they can feel cared for and nourished. This is not because they're, they're, they're weak and because they need protection from the big bad world and can't do anything themselves. Every, woman that I think I've ever seen in a relationship wants that guy to look at them as if they are the only one to pour into them, to devote themselves to them, to say she is my one and only and she is important and I will pay attention to her and I will listen and I will engage and I will, I will cooperate and work. I will, I will look to her because she is my one and only. When I when I started in ministry back in uh, the year 2003, you know, and I've been involved in, in working in the church for a number of years. I was like really nervous to say this because I grew up in a in a I, I, I went to college in a place where we had something called the Women's Center. W-O-M-Y-N-S Women's because they said, we're taking the women out of men. And it was like, what is going on here? It was very hostile at the time. Men and women want to be in these relationships with one another, and they crave certain things. Guys crave respect. Women crave being cherished and being safe and having somebody who is for them. Now, you can tell me I'm wrong. You can but so often, I, just, I find out if there's, if there's trust and we really get into it, there comes some point where I can say, look, look, this is, what you're, this is what you're looking for. Husbands are commanded to treat their wives this way, to cherish them, to nourish them, to sacrifice for them, and to not become bitter towards them or to become harsh towards them. Bitterness. Exasperated, angry, indignant, irritated, nasty. You can go and work 40 hours and you can put your check in the bank and say, here, spend this money. And if you are nasty to her, you will destroy her soul. It doesn't matter what else you do. You can do all kinds of things and point and say, look at how hard I work and look at what I provide and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't matter if you're a jerk towards her. Harshness will kill your relationship. Now, Peter points out, uh, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to finish. I'm not going to break it off because I feel like I've given, I I explained the wives part. I got to work through the husband stuff and not rush. So just stick with me here. Apologies if we go a little later. Sometimes I'll say it's communion Sunday. It's not. I talk a lot. Anyway. (laughs) There's a, there's a verse, there's a verse in scripture where, where it says there, it says after Peter talked a long time, right? And I'm like, that's proof why preaching sermons should be long. Anyway, Peter talks about why it's important not to be harsh towards, towards wives. And he says in 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And we're like, oh, there it is. Patriarchy and male oppression and domination, Right. It, it, it's, guys are, guys are, are tough in a way that women aren't. This doesn't mean women, women are weaker. We're not breaking out the fainting couches and the smelling salts, right? You know, and, and, and giving them all pearls so they can clutch them and say, oh my goodness, and pass out, right? That's, that's not what's being talked about here. Women are different guys are able to like suppress their emotions and go out and do tough stuff. We like the fact that women are soft and emotional and that they care. They're amazing at nourishing relationships. They're fantastic at showing care towards children, right? My wife is like, oh, I'm gonna miss when they're little. You know, like she, she watches people with their kids and, and she's like, I miss them being that small. And I'm like, I do not miss them spilling milk everywhere constantly. Like I do not miss, I do not miss certain things. I'm like, stop doing that. Do this instead, right? You know, I, but, but my wife creates this environment of, of it's a home, not a, just a place where we live, right? And you don't stick your flowers in a soda can and display them, right? You put them in a vase. Vases are pretty. They're not as durable as soda cans or, you know, but they're delicate. Weaker doesn't mean like pathetic, right? Delicate and weak, weaker are, 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 are different. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Bitterness destroys fellowship between husband and wife, and it creates dysfunction. It creates problems. We're we're created to be in these relationships, and we're uh, in, uh, we're, On uneven terms with one another men are like women in the way that they're both human beings but they're different in what they're looking for out of the relationship what they're looking for from each other and we need to make sure guys that that we're not operating on a basis of of requiring respect or treating our wife like she's our buddy right like she's just one of the guys She's not. She's different. Um, the scriptures say here that they are heirs together of the grace of life. Your wife is not just another human being, she is your sister in Christ. And therefore, doubly worthy of love and honor and not bitterness. The way that we treat our spouse determines the way that we are able to be involved in leading the church, the way that we lead our spouse, the way that we care for them and cultivate them. This doesn't mean treating them like they are a child and and lecturing them, but the way that we praise and honor and encourage and empower Shapes the way that we raise children. It shapes the way that we lead other people. It shapes the way that we care for other people. Husbands find themselves in a place where they have the advantage of having a scripture that says wives submit to your husbands. But the call to love our wife the call to love your future wife, the call to, to love uh, uh, the, the wife that you've been married to for 20 years or for 40 years means that we need to hear Matthew when he says, when, when Jesus says in Matthew that, that, that we're not to act like the rulers of the Gentiles. Paul says that we're not supposed to throw around our authority or lord it over others. Instead, the one who would be great among the crowd, among the disciples, would be their servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve but came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why is Jesus at the top of the heap? Why does he wear the crown? Why does he have the name that's above every name? Why is he the one that we're pointed, constantly pointed to, and shown as an example of of behavior? and, and, And we're to look to him and we're to have his mind in us. Why? Because he embraced the greater servant role. Guys. It is, it is not a free pass that your wife is supposed to support your leadership. You're supposed to serve. You're supposed to serve. You're supposed to be active and engaged and serving as the Lord Jesus serves. Because you are symbolizing him in your relationship. And he serves the church. And he cares for the church. And he loves the church and gives himself up for her. This is not a free pass. This is not a get out of jail free card. This is not a you don't have to do your homework pass, right? This is not a gift card that entitles you to do whatever you want. It's an opportunity to display the character, character of Christ. Now, let me just shut this down and offer you just some closing thoughts. First, no one does this perfectly, Right? You're not going to walk out of here and look at one another and say, we've messed up a little bit in our marriage, right? Like, let's try again. And, and, and now that you've heard this message and read this scripture, it's going to be like, oh, this is going to, this, everything's going to be great. It doesn't work that way. No one does this perfectly. Instead, this is what we ought to return to over and over and over as the standard. This is the way, right, guys? Mm-hmm. This is the way. This is what we do. That was terrible, Star Wars fans. Um, these behaviors pick up strength and force as they increase, as they are put into practice, right? It's, it's not that you're going you're gonna to say, oh, honey, you look nice today, and let me wash the dishes, and suddenly everything's going to be turned around. It's the regular, ongoing, regular practice of service and prioritizing, nourishing, and caring, and loving that's going to going to pick up steam and and grow. Nobody is supposed to be turned into the king or the emperor or the dominating lording ruler here because Jesus models both of these behaviors. He is responsive to his father, submitting and supporting his will, and he is self-sacrificing and he leads and Supports the church. Jesus models both of these behaviors. And we ought to, uh, to seek to incorporate them into our lives as well. And then finally, just remember that all of this is because it's connected to the example of the Lord Jesus. It's always as to the Lord and not as to my husband. Or uh, we're, we're, to, we're to embrace these things because they're right. Not because... We say, hey, I'm going to obey this command and I'm going to get something in return. We do these things because they're right. We do them because we're honoring the Lord Jesus, not because we're going to get something in return. We do it for a higher purpose, we do it because we are beloved. We do it because God has shown grace to us. We embrace change because we're his chosen ones. And we forgive and embrace obedience because we've been forgiven by Christ. And as we've been forgiven, so we ought to forgive others. We put on these virtues. We seek to obey these things and build them into our relationships because this is how God has created us. This is what he's called us to. This is ultimately what's fulfilling and it's because this is what he has called us to in Christ. And so uh, we're going to close in prayer and we'll sing a final song and we'll go. Father, thank you that we can open up your word. Lord, I pray that, that we, would, we would resist the temptation to respond as the world does so often. We respond with self-centeredness and we say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to follow through on that because what about me or what about the past or God doesn't know what I've been through. Instead, I pray that, that we would consider what is being said and we would dig in and we would say, this is the way that I've been, I've been led. This is the example of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. This is the potential for what could be and that we would embrace our response to one another. Father, as as husband and wife, as men and women, I pray that you'd give us great wisdom. I pray that you you would protect us from bitterness and harshness and that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to build your way and your will and your character into our marital relationships lord we pray that you would do this to help us honor you as our our father lord jesus to honor you as our savior holy spirit we pray that you would fill us and bring this to pass and we pray this in jesus name amen let's stand and sing our closing song together